Well, Grace Point, it is so good to see you. So glad you're here this morning. We are going to continue our series, Bible Stories for Grownups, but this week and next week, next week, we're going to be wrapping up this iteration of it. For those of you who have just loved this series, do not fret. We're going to bring it back at some point and look at all different Bible stories. But for now, we're going to begin to wrap this up. Next week, we're going to look at a text known as the Great Commission, which happens at the end of Matthew, where Jesus sends the disciples out into the world. And we're going to try to ask new questions about that, reframe it and reimagine it. I'm so excited. This week, we're going to hear uh, another familiar story, probably for some of you, if you grew up in a church context. Um, This is a story, it's a pretty striking encounter between Jesus and a man who has been possessed by uh, a demonic presence. It's actually, um, we'll get to what the language about that is in just a minute. It's quite quite the action-packed story. So before we jump into talking about what may be going on here, let's listen to this text. It's Mark 5, verses 1 through 20, and then we'll jump in. Jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the lake, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs. This man lived among the tombs, and no one was ever strong enough to restrain him, even with a chain. He had been secured many times with legs, irons, and chains, but he broke the chains and smashed the leg irons. No one was tough enough to control him. Night and day in the tombs and the hills, he would howl and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from far away, he ran and knelt before him, shouting, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Swear to God you won't torture me. He said this because Jesus had already commanded him, Unclean spirit, come out of the man. Jesus asked him, What's your name? He responded, Legion is my name because we are many. They pleaded with Jesus not to send them out of that region. A large herd of pigs was feeding on this hillside. Send us into the pigs, they begged. Let us go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission. So the unclean spirits left the man and went into the pigs. Then the herd of about 2,000 pigs rushed down the cliff into the lake and drowned. Those who tended the pigs ran away and told the story in the city and the countryside. People came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who used to be demon-possessed. They saw the man, the very man who had been filled with many demons, sitting there fully dressed and completely sane, and they were filled with awe. Those who had actually seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man told the others about the pigs. Then they pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. See, I told you, that is an action-packed story. And before we jump in and start breaking it down, uh, I think it's important for us to talk about what happens just before this story. Um, we often approach the Bible the way we've ended up approaching music. Um, and, and here's what I mean. Um, when a musician creates an album, the, the point for that musician generally is to hear the whole thing, right? An album tells a story. And so I remember growing up and you know listening to vinyl and listening to side A and flipping it over to side B or taking the cassette tape and, p- and putting it in and listening and then flipping the cassette tape over and putting it back and listening to the other side. And in kind of the way we hear music now is really, really different. Uh, because now we, we typically hear music a la carte, right? Like we go on iTunes, we go on Spotify, we go on Amazon, and we download, save particular songs we like from albums, and we never actually end up hearing, in, in most cases, the artist's entire vision. We don't get the full experience. And uh, we, we tend to approach the Bible that way too. And uh, look, I'll confess, I'm an a la carte person too. I go on and save, yes, absolutely. 
Uh, but I, I do recognize that there's something happening there. There's an overall story being told. And what we often do with the Bible is we take a little sliver of it here or a snippet there, and we just talk about it without really giving any attention to what came before or after. And I'm not going to read this text, but what we need to know is that before our story in Mark 5, before Mark 5, there's Mark 4. Um, my parents did not waste a dime on my education. And in Mark 4, there's this interesting experience where Jesus and his disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee. And the name is a little bit, um, it gives us the wrong impression. This is not really the sea as in the ocean. This is a freshwater lake, which isn't by comparison to lots of other lakes. It isn't actually all that big. But they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. And while they're crossing the lake, a strong storm blows up. And it's, it, the winds are howling and the waves are rocking the boat. And the, these disciples are in this boat and they really are terrified that the whole thing is gonna sink. And when they're looking for Jesus, they find him in the back of the boat asleep. And they wake him up and say, aren't, Jesus, aren't you afraid we're going to drown? And of course, Jesus gets up and he speaks to the wind and he speaks to the waves, peace, be still, and there's calm. Now, the reason I bring this story up, Jesus calming the storm, is because this idea of the sea, of the water, it is deeply symbolic in the culture that produced the stories we're looking at today. Let me give you an example. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, the writer has this vision of these four beasts, which all come out out of a chaotic and churning sea. And these four beasts represent four empires, which have subjugated and oppressed the Jewish people throughout history. Right? And where do these beasts come from? They come from the sea because the sea in the ancient world is a, it sort of represents this idea of chaos and uh, disorder. And particularly when it comes to the realm of politics, it would often be sort of a metaphor for political chaos and disorder, which is why when we get to the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament, and by the way, that's Revelation, no S, pet peeve for a Bible nerd. When we get to the book of Revelation, we pick up in chapter 13 with this image of a beast coming out of the sea, which was representative of the Roman Empire. And it's coming out of the sea because the sea is this place of almost fear and, and unknown and uncertainty and chaos. And then in Revelation 21, at the end of the Bible, there's this new vision of a new heaven and a new earth and an interesting detail is that there is no sea. And I always wondered about that. But when you think about the sea being this chaos and disorder, this reality that is threatening, political especially, um, no sea means no turmoil, no conflict, no disorder, everything being in right relationship with everything else. And so as we jump into this story, we'll come back to that idea, but, but Jesus calms the sea. And then at the end of this story, something else happens with the sea. So let's jump into the story. Jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the lake after he calmed the storm to the region of the Gerasenes. We'll throw up a map because I want you to see, this is, if you're a Bible nerd, this part's just for you. Um, there's this location on the other side of the lake that's called Gerasa, which is the region of the Gerasenes. And Mark calls it this, but this is clearly either by Mark or a scribe, this is a mistake. And here's why. Um, this region, Gerasa, as you can see on the map, is 37 miles southeast of the lake, which means if the pigs at the end of the story are running and in, rushing into the lake, they're, they're doing so at, at breakneck speed and they're going 37 miles, which seems like it may have lost some of the impact of the event. Um, then there's this other option that's used by Matthew called Gadara, and Gadara is roughly five miles southeast of the lake. And there's one final location that's actually only in a few manuscripts, ancient manuscripts of Matthew that call the place Gergesa, which is right on the lake. So, I mean, I'm guessing that this location 
is right here on the lake, but wh wherever it was, all of these locations, what you need to know about them is this is Gentile territory, meaning that it is territory that for someone like Jesus and his disciples, this is a territory that is unclean, a territory that you would avoid. And so Jesus gets out of the boat and immediately a man possessed by an evil spirit comes out of the tombs. Like, could you get, I mean, could it get creepier? Not only does he have a, like an evil spirit, but he's hanging out in the tombs, which just adds to sort of the suspense. He lived among the tombs. No one could ever was strong enough to restrain him, even with a chain. He had been secured many times with leg irons and chains, but he broke the chains and smashed the leg irons. No one was tough enough to control him. Night and day in the tombs and the hills, he would howl and cut himself with stones. Evil is actually a poor translation here. The, the word is not evil. Um, that's sort of us reading into the text what we want it to mean. Actually, the, the word here is unclean. This man who's living in the tombs has an unclean spirit. So he's in unclean territory, possessed by an unclean spirit. He lives among unclean tombs. And this guy is clearly in a deep, deep, deep amount of pain, not only externally, but he is dealing with a deep amount of internal pain. He is howling among the tombs. And when he sees, and, and I guess we should say this too, this, there's almost a, a level of dehumanization here. He, the way he's presented, he's being presented as being almost animal-like as opposed to human. He's just in this state of agony and pain. And when he saw Jesus from far away, he ran and knelt before him shouting, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. That's, that's a quite, quite a hello. Like the guy runs out, falls down in front of Jesus and says, promise me, swear to God, you won't torture me. And he said this because Jesus had already commanded him, unclean spirit, come out of the man. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He responded, legion is my name because we are many. They pleaded with Jesus not to send them out of the region. So this unclean spirit recognizes Jesus right away. No, no like introduction, no unclean spirit meet Jesus, Jesus meet unclean spirit. Like he sees Jesus, there's this initial reaction from the, this spirit, these spirits that are possessing this man to, to uh, that Jesus is powerful, that he's more powerful than they are, that Jesus could actually make them do whatever Jesus wants them to do, that Jesus has authority. Now this word legion, uh, if you're all the lights on your dashboard are blinking, that's it's a good thing because legion is actually a Roman military term. It was uh, a term used to describe a, a unit of Roman soldiers of about 6,000 soldiers. Now, I don't think what's being said is this guy has 6,000 <laughs> unclean spirits just living in him, but th there's something else going on there. We're going to come back to this term. Um, it, it's not a statement about how many spirits are possessing him, but it could be a statement about the source of his oppression. We'll come back. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. Send us into the pigs. Pigs, again, unclean. Um, let us go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission. So the unclean spirits left the man and went into the pigs. Then the herd of about 2,000 pigs rushed down the cliff into the lake and drowned. Those who tended the pigs ran away and told the story in the city and in the countryside. People came to see what had happened. I mean, so this is a whole thing. Like this, is, this massive thing has happened and now people are coming to see the fallout of the situation. They came to Jesus and saw the man who used to be demon-possessed. They saw the very man who had been filled with many demons sitting there fully dressed and completely sane, and they were filled with awe. Those who actually seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man told the others about the pigs, and they pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. So much going on, right? So pigs are unclean animals according to the Torah, but there's something else going on here because by the time of Jesus' day, pigs were not only symbolic of uncleanness, but uh, pigs were symbolic of 
oppression. And here's why. Several of the empires that end up oppressing the Jewish people um, tried to cause them to sacrifice pigs on the altar in their temple. One specific instance in the 160s BCE, so before the time of Jesus, um, was when a, a Greek dynasty called the Seleucids dominated Judea. There was a king that, that was called Antiochus Epiphanes, which literally means Antiochus, the God made manifest, who decided that he wanted to impose a project of Hellenization. Uh, and if, if you, uh, social studies or wh- whatever it would have been from uh, way back in junior high, Hellenization is essentially, my word, the Greekification of the world. They enacted a program to make everybody think Greek, speak Greek, act Greek, be Greek religiously, like it was, it was the Greekification of the world. And one of the ways they wanted to do this was by knocking out anything that was unique or different. And so for Jewish people who were opposed and, and saw pigs as unclean animals, this king, Antiochus, attempted to force them to sacrifice and eat pigs because it was the, sort of a way, an indignity, but also a way to try to snuff out their culture. And actually there was a revolt by the Maccabees that led to the holiday we, now we call Hanukkah that's all a part of that same uh, situation. Another interesting tidbit as we think about this story, the Roman legion stationed in Palestine, which is where this event is taking, the general region this event is taking place, was, known, was represented by the emblem of a wild boar. Uh, we know this historically, that this particular Roman legion that was stationed there, their symbol was a wild boar. Um, and also one other interesting tidbit from the story, the word translated herd in this story is not a word that would be used for pigs. Um, it was actually a word that was used for Roman military recruits. So if you're beginning to notice, there are all these layers being piled up in this story, um, and we'll get to them in just a minute. But at the end of the story, the pigs rush into the sea. Again, what is the sea? It's the place of chaos and disorder. It's also the place the Romans came from. Uh, not this particular, they would come from the ocean, but right, it's the symbolic. They would have come from the sea, and now these pigs infested with this legion of demons has run back into the sea. And I love the scene where the, this man who had been oppressed by all these evil, unclean spirits, we come back to him and he's, he's been rehumanized in a way. He has been liberated from his oppression and he's back to himself. He's been restored. The removing of the legion of demons, uh, sending them back to the sea where they came from has brought a new level of sanity and wholeness to this guy's life. And then they beg Jesus to leave. Is that what you would do here? I mean, why do you not say, hey, 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 stick around. Find, like, go, like, find a place to set up shop. We can do this. We can, we can bring people to you. You can do this sort of thing. It could be a really good business. It could be a tourist attraction. We should do a whole like Jesus thing and we can have people come and we can make a good, uh, good deal. We can, let's have a good deal and, and everybody will get wealthy on this. No, no, no. They, they say, actually, Jesus, we need you to get out of town now. Why in the world would they do that? What does this story mean? I want to offer a few meanings. I think one meaning is is fairly obvious that we might draw from the story is that Jesus, as we've talked about again and again, Jesus is a boundary breaker. His willingness to transcend the insider, outsider, clean, unclean boundaries, his his, uh, willingness to humanize those who have been dehumanized, it's been something that's been lost tragically by many expressions of the Christian tradition. Instead of transcending boundaries, many expressions of the Christian tradition have been reinforcing boundaries. Jesus also has this contagious wholeness about him. In the stories which he encounters someone assumed to be unclean and somebody who should be avoided, right? Whether it's a person or a territory, Jesus goes into those places. And as he does so, his wholeness 
is contagious. And I, I maybe would argue that it's not even that. What Jesus does in these situations is he shows that the people we've always assumed to be unclean and thus excluded really were never unclean to begin with. I think whatever you want to believe about how literal or not literal Jesus' miracles were, I think one truth about them is that Jesus, by embracing people who had been excluded because they were considered to be outcast, unclean, by embracing them and bringing them into community, Jesus is providing whatever you believe about physical healing, Jesus is providing a social healing. He's saying to the community, the people you have been afraid of, you don't have to fear. So Jesus has got this contagious wholeness about him. Another meaning has to do with Jesus and Rome. I mean, the elements of this story that are just completely rife with Roman Empire imagery. You have legion, you have oppression, you have military terminology. And all of those point between a conflict between the Roman occupiers and the kingdom of God vision Jesus has announced and embodied. Jesus enters this story as a liberator. He liberates this man possessed by the legion. He sends the Roman legion into the swine and back into the sea from from whence they came, which is a, I love saying that phrase. I just, from whence they came. Right, because Roman occupation was a colonization project. And it brought all of this de- uh, oppression, dehumanization, and exploitation that a colonial project brings. It devastated the vast majority of the lives it touched, enriched the few who had power and wealth and chose collaboration, and everybody else was just sort of crunched by the gears of the empire. Everybody suffered Everybody was, so this idea, I mean, when, when I hear now, when I hear demon possession, when I hear unclean spirit possession in the New Testament, the first thing I begin to look for is, could this be symbolic of what the Roman Empire is doing? Because in so many of these stories, these, these folks who have come down with this unclean spirit, it, it often is in a context where this, this is a critique about Rome. Rome is oppressing this land. Rome is possessing and oppressing these people. Rome is causing them to be dehumanized. Rome is causing them to starve to death. I think that's what's going on in these stories. The the colonization of the Roman Empire in first century Palestine is is evidenced in the colonization of these demons, of this human being who's suffering in the story. I think this story raises all sorts of questions for Mark's original audience because what, we, what do we know about Rome? We know that on the heels of the revolt in 70 CE, Rome brought down the temple, destroyed it, and destroyed Jerusalem. And perhaps Mark, in telling this story, is offering an alternative approach to how to deal with the Romans. Because Jesus' approach is not one of violent resistance. Jesus' approach is one of nonviolent liberation. Jesus taught to share resources. Jesus taught to transcend boundaries of unclean and clean, to cast our lot with the least and marginalized. Jesus taught that in truth, violence will never get rid of the Romans. Ultimately, they found out in 70 CE when the Romans destroyed the city. They found out again in the year 132 when they rebelled again. And again, Rome came in and destroyed the city. But if they followed Jesus, if they created communities of mutual aid, if they created communities of healing and wholeness by embracing one another, transcending boundaries, if they created communities that provided for and sustained one another, if they began to change the social order from the inside out, Rome wouldn't stand a chance. And I think when you read the New Testament, I think that's what the early church is trying to do. They're trying to create an alternative social order right in the middle of the empire, which is why the empire saw them as a threat. If you can convince people that you don't need what Rome offers because we take care of each other, that you don't need bread and circus because at this table, everybody gets enough to eat. 
that begins to threaten the very power structures of the empire. Do you see why they asked Jesus to leave in this story? When you start telling, when you tell these kind of stories, when you do this kind of action, when Jesus symbolically expels the Roman empire from the land, do you see why these people would say, we don't want anything to do with this because this is clearly operating at another level and this could get us in really big trouble with Rome. This also raises all sorts of questions and curiosities for me about what it means to be a church, about what it means to be a citizen of the greatest economic and military superpower the world has ever known, and which of those, shape, which of those things shape me most and have my greatest allegiance. These are hard questions and they're difficult realities. And the, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned um, is that really hard questions and difficult realities can't be resolved in a sermon. Right, that's not just, it's, this, it's not a sitcom, it's not 30 minutes, we tie it all up and everybody's good. But I do think that taking Jesus seriously and developing a grown-up faith, which is what we're doing in this series, we're, we're coming back and saying, what does it look, to, look like to engage these stories from a grown-up lens? Then what does it look like to try to actually engage them in application from a grown-up lens? Sometimes I think it just leaves us with a lot of, like the last three weeks for me have left me with a lot of really uncomfortable questions questions that I'm sorting through and parsing out of my own life, questions that I'm engaging with as, we, as they come up in places like Reconstruct. And I don't have all the answers, but I do know that this is the work that we are called to. This is the work the first Christians were called to. And this is the work that they've left us to do. And my hope and my prayer is that we will take that work seriously right here in our own community.